What's up, Bike Rumor fans? My guest today is Alexi Vermeulen. He's a former pro roadie, having ridden for the BMC development team and then Lotto and El Yumbo before switching gears to gravel, where he now rides for Jukebox Print, Envy, Shimano, and others. You might know him better as that guy that rides with the dog on his back. I met Alexi at Sierra this year, and as I was going through all the photos of his new custom Envy Mog, I thought, you know, I bet he'd be a really fun guy to have a conversation with. So here we are. We came into this call with no agenda, but I asked him to have a story ready to start things off. And it turned out to be a great catalyst for talking about everything from why pros aren't great at teaching amateurs, motivation to ride or race, and some great life lessons about, well, life. And of course, we talk about Willie the Wiener Dog and why he started riding with his girlfriend's dog in a backpack. Please welcome Alexi Vermeulen. Hey, Alexi, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks, Tyler. Excited to chat. Yeah, I mean, me too. I usually don't have much of an agenda for these, but this in this particular one, I have like almost no agenda. But I did kind of give you a heads up that it would be fun to just start with a story. You know, like you've had a long your racing career, you kind of switched to gravel, you're known for carrying Willie the Wiener Dog in your backpack. So I just, I figured you must have at least one really fun story that people would love to hear. And yeah, um, if you want to jump into that, man, let's tell me a story. Yeah. One of my favorite stories to tell actually isn't, doesn't have to do with Willie. It's pre-Willie, surprisingly. It exists. Wait, wait, you existed before Willie? <laughs> Crazy, I know. Yeah, I, I was just kind of figuring out what cycling was. My grandfather had immigrated from Holland, lived in Canada, used to come visit. And he had ridden growing up, raced growing up, and he used to take me out on these bike rides, but not like a normal like grandfather and, and grandchild going bike rides, like, oh, like 60K, like 80K. <laughs> Like, oh, we're going to go to this coffee shop or this cider mill, but it's going to be like away and then you've got to find your way back. And um, I just vividly remember one of them, one of the early ones, just absolutely and utterly bonking to know I've never hit that place again, it feels like. But the whole way home, I'd pedal my heart out and kind of then fall back into his hand and he'd give me a push. And that was like the last 12 miles, 20K of the ride. It just kind of sticks with me because it's just as my cycling career or life path has progressed and changed. The moment that kind of shaped who I was to become, I think. Yeah. How so? Like, what what did that teach you? Or was it just a fond memory of your, you and your grandfather? It's a fond memory. First off, I think he, I called him Opa. He passed from, from, from cancer in 2009. So he never got to see me race a bike, which I think would have been really cool. Um, and I think it's just something we all carry something. Even that phrase that is on my NB Mog that kind of connected you and I, that let op phrase in, from, in Dutch comes from him. The direction translation is pay attention, but kind of in all regards to me, it's like, wake up, pay attention to eating, drinking, friends, family, community, like not the greater sense of what that could possibly mean. And so then I think it also just taught me a little bit of caring, right? When you're 12, you want the world to be about you um, and everything you do. And you kind of realize when you bonk that hard in the middle of nowhere, you're kind of alone. And um, yeah, I think it just like all, all the things kind of started that was kind of the time for me where I started to kind of see a path, which is weird because I think it's pretty young for most kids. But I started thinking like, oh, why am I playing soccer? I'm never going to be professional in this. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy soccer. I was just like, I'd rather go do things that I'm really good at. And it kind of just started creating its path. Um, and it kind of all started with those rides because I don't like I don't know how else you do that. And it was all fun at that point, right? It was we were aiming at something and there was no like go train. And I still didn't have that for a couple more years. My parents got me a coach in the beginning just to like, hey, can you help this kid decide what sports to do on what day? 
And as it kind so of So it was more of a life yeah. coach than a specific sport coach. <laughs> and I still work with him today, but it's funny. Like, oh, wow. yeah, at first they were like, can you, can you help? Like I had, I was playing ice, the like really busy time was I was playing like ice hockey. I was playing, running cross country and I was racing bikes and trying to do all of them at a high level and something fails at some point. It's funny, especially at that age, right? Like I think most kids are just doing whatever's fun, you know, and it's, it's rare at that age to kind of like, lean into something and say, yeah, this is, you know, figure out like, I could be like, okay, at a lot of things, or I could be really good at this one thing, and jump on that. I still suffer from that. I could be okay at a lot of things because I find it all interesting, right? Like I haven't grown up in that regard. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's the definition, right? When I, when I think about advice that I give to most kids and I, it's so cliched at this point, but finding things that make you smile, you know, that are fun, it will change the way that you exist, right? If you're not like, I've now been trying to think of professional bikers since theoretically 2013 it's a decade now and it's it's fun to go ride it's fun to plan a ride it's fun to adventure it's fun but that all exists with me trying to be honest with myself the whole time like hey am i enjoying this right now do i want to do this next year do i want to do this in five years and i think for a while every time i asked that question it changed and it kind of led into like continuing to believe and find the place where i really really enjoy what i was doing What's the longest timeline you've asked yourself? You know, like, do you see yourself still doing this in five years and 10 years and 15 years? I say the longest timeline I've really looked at is like five to seven years. Right now, that's kind of what I tell people. Like, I don't know that I will be, because I'm a very, very competitive person. I can set it aside, but I'm like, I struggle to not try to, I see someone with a dog on their back and I want to race it with my dog on my back. Like, it never <laughs> ends. I was like, this guy's on an e-bike commuting. Like, it, um, but no, I... I struggle to see myself being really competitive on a bike in seven years, maybe even five. And I think that doesn't mean I have to be done racing, but I think I will want my priorities to change a little bit by that point. Have you gone so far as to think about like why that is? I mean, for me, right? Like I, I think definitely older than you, but I would think, you know, like, okay, I, I might want to go out on the top, right? As opposed to continue on when it's clear that my talents are maybe waning a little bit or that the younger people coming up behind me are just so much better that like, why am I still here? Because I think at some point we all just start embarrassing ourselves too. No, it's hard. That's the thing. You look at people, especially on the road when I was growing up, because I grew up completely road cycling and you look at people have quote unquote retirement parties and you're like, for what? For, for what? What? Like you're celebrating yourself in a way. It's like having a second birthday party. But I, as you get older, you kind of find the reason people have retirement parties, right? It's, it's a place to, for them, find a line in the sand and say, hey, it's, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to change my day to day life now. And so, yeah, I, I don't think I really care to end on top. I think I left a lot of that, like, I definitely still have ego, but I left a lot of that ego when I left the road. I just think gravel is a lot more about, the enjoyment of it with everybody else doesn't mean you can't go out and bash everyone's skulls in sometimes when you're feeling good but at the same time you can get to that finish line and immediately be like this is a community event and not about me i didn't like this podium ceremony is probably the least important part of this event so i have to imagine i'm gonna find a place where i think i just am unwilling to dedicate that much time to training to be at the best at the best i can be and I think that's what it comes down to. Obviously, your body will start to fail you at some point, but also it's just you mentally won't find that that smile, that enjoyment at some point. And at that point, I'd rather change up quick. And I think if I dive a little deeper, it comes down to a spot of I was 20, 20, 20 years old when I got a contract with BMC development team. Sorry, no, 18. 
I convinced my parents I wanted to defer school, a deferred school for three years until I signed my world tour contract. I was for Yumbo for a couple of years. And I think at each of those moments was trying to figure out how and where I fit in. And I think that whole like five-year plan, as it ends up shifting each time, if you'd really truly ask yourself, to me, there was a point where in the middle there, I felt inferior for not having gone to school. Like I looked at my friends, there's a point where you're making money and life's grand and your friends are at school and you can go back and party with them and do everything you want in the off season. And there's a point where they have now graduated school and they are moving on, whether it's buying houses or moving to a place they're going to live forever. And you feel like you're still in the same place, even if you're signing a new contract. And I think the big point for me was getting over the fact that I wasn't less than for not going to school. I think everybody says that, but it's such a, when someone says it, you're like, yeah, thank you. I'm still only making 15 grand. That's very helpful. You can just keep telling me that diploma doesn't matter, but it feels like it does right now. But as it kind of progresses and you find your legs, like the last three years for me off the road, I would say I've progressed very little in the sport of cycling, insanely in like my life skills, background, how, who I am as a person, because it just, it's taught me not only self-value, but also finding ways to actually be involved positively in the world, which is kind of like when I left the road, something I said I wanted to do, but it's really hard when you're also racing a bike and then finding a way to just be able to look five or 10 years down the road and be excited about the future and not nervous. Because when you do one thing for a long time, it's easy to get comfortable and future can look foggy. Interesting. I want to go, just before we get too far ahead, I want to go back to one thing you said earlier on, just because I, I agree with it 100%. I think it's an interesting perspective on not training, but just riding, right? Like you said, you know, when you have a, a point to get to, it's easier. And, you know, that's my buddy Watson and I, we typically, you know, every other weekend or so we'll ride to some brewery somewhere, right? And it could be 50 miles away. It could be 80 miles away. If I said, hey, I'm going to go out and do an 80 mile ride, probably just not do it. But I said, oh, we're going to ride to this brewery and it's 80 miles. Great. And then our wives are going to come pick us up and get a, we'll get a ride home. That's awesome. I'll do that every weekend. Right. But yeah, if I just had to go out and do an 80 mile ride just for the sake of it, you know, not having that destination kind of crushes morale a lot, I think. Yeah. And I think it's something like, not to like derail this at all, but it's one of the reasons I love Strava. I, the KOM, QOM stuff, I think it's the least important part of Strava. It kind of annoys me sometimes. The ability to plan a route into places you've never been and follow where other people have gone via heat map and stuff. It's so dang cool. Like I've lived in Boulder now since 2020 and we did a ride yesterday on roads that I, just a couple roads that I'd never done and you cut through differently. And it's because someone else before me figured out how to do it without Strava. Nice. Yeah. And then going back to picking up where we were, the, you said, you know, you wanted to find ways to contribute more positively to the world or to cycling. Like, so what does that mean? Like, what are you doing? I mean, I, like I said, 2019 was my first like full year on the dirt. That's a weird thing to say, but it's the easiest way to say it, racing mountain bikes and gravel. I remember like vividly telling Shimano, I was like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And just nothing worked. Like at the end of the year, kind of ended up doing this kid's ride at Iceman, but like nothing really fell into place because it's hard to race your bike and be competitive and also positively impact other people. COVID kind of gave a break to all of us that I think some of us needed. It gave me, I think, as an athlete, two things. First off, it gave a little bit of power because for the first time, companies saw value in athletes the same as they saw value in events because with events gone, there was not really just things to invest in, but able to see why a certain athlete would be good for a certain product or promotion of something. And that also let me take a pause and figure out where am I valuable. So that was one of the biggest things that started as a small project, which has become pretty big and probably 65% of my time. 
There's a project called From the Ground Up that a friend and I created here out of Boulder. In August of 2020, we did a, I just moved here, we did a ride from Boulder to Crested Butte over seven of the old uh, mining passes. And you have a lot of time to talk. It's like 10 hours a day. And um, he came from triathlon. I had obviously come from the road and we were kind of just talking about how we saw the sport as being flawed, which is obviously a funny thing because two white guys talking about sport being flawed is, can be comical. We kind of came down to this, the simplest version of it was, and it was not this simple on the ride because it was very long, long-winded on the ride, but pros are very bad at teaching amateurs. And if you had a new wave of amateurs coming into the sport, we didn't think pros should be positioning themselves to be the ones selling product or helping teach because all of their background comes from different backgrounds, right? Comes from, I eat this way because X, Y, Z. I train this way because X, Y, Z. I only do gym workouts one day a week in the gym, like so many different things. And then also how far the vocabulary was ahead of what an amateur or new person coming in. By the time I want to go talk to someone, even if I think I'm being helpful and nice, I'm so far away from where they're coming from. It's almost demoralizing. Even if you ride past and you wave and smile, if you're riding past at twice the speed of someone who got on a bike last week, they're not going to be very happy about it. Nobody is. And so this kind of morphed into, okay, how do we show this? How do you do this? And the first year was 2021. We took three people who had never, not off the couch, but had never ridden or raced a bike, really. Those three, the first year, hadn't even played a high school sport. Took them to Leadville over six months. So, and the point was to document that process with other professionals in, in the space, whether it be coaching or sports psych or nutrition, and help that pathway and see where you can get to. Journey being the goal, not the end result. If you don't finish Leadville, who cares? It's a sadistic race. <laughs> That's not the point. And it was massive. We opened this application process pretty much saying, we, you're giving you everything you need to do this if you have to dedicate the time. And it was open for about two and a half weeks. We had 1,200 applications with videos that were ranging from 42 seconds to 17 minutes. And you're watching all these people and you're like, holy shit, like this is what, like people need something to aim for. Like we were just talking about, people need something, even if it's ridiculous and stupid. And so that, that first year happened and we were like, okay, we're doing this again. And we did it in 2022. We just were in 2023 right now. And it's become something that is, I don't want to say my positive impact, but it's something that I care so much about. Like I would find ways I would limit my cycling career to continue doing this if that's what it took. It's just impactful. It's, it's, it's adults, people who have kind of at some point given up on their dreams, in my opinion, absolutely and utterly dedicating themselves to the impossible. Because after watching three years, you can walk into the project and kind of know that it's somewhat impossible in six months to take on that bill. <laughs> yeah. That I don't like, I can't, I don't, I can't explain what that is for somebody to make a video and want to do something that they've seen their peers fail at for three years. Kind of intoxicating. Yeah, that's cool. And, and you know, the, the butterfly effect of that is probably huge too, right? Like those people go back into their communities and people see what they've accomplished and they're so excited. They're telling stories and it probably rallies troops and then it just keeps spreading, right? Like it, I'm sure it's contagious. Yes, that's what we hope. I mean, it's, it's become like this community from the ground up. Like we do skills camps every year in Bentonville and like it's a gathering of adults that just want to have fun, right? You give your kid to grandma and head over and ride bikes for four days. And I can only hope that it's empowering and that, that that simple goal of like helping people teach people, it seems like it has, right? Because maybe Shauna has learned how to pump her tires and what PSI, and then somebody else over here has is figured out how to change a tube. And you can do those things and you don't have to insert somebody who's just going to like, if I'm going to do it, I have to really remind myself because otherwise I'm going to go in and do it because it's easier and faster and I want to keep riding my bike. And it's not 
that I'm trying to be an asshole, but it's that I'm definitely missing the point when I do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a struggle with parenthood, right? It's like teaching your kids how to do something instead of just doing it for them because you're impatient. (laughs) That's the hardest part. Yeah, cool, man. What was the transition to gravel? Like what sparked that for you? Uh, I wasn't the like transition to gravel guy. At first I thought I wanted to go race World Cup mountain bikes and then realized that was way too hard and I was not good (laughs) enough for that. But I think I, I I got lucky also. Like it was the perfect time. I mean, I remember when I left, it was a lot about, for me, it was a lot like I still miss road cycling. Like I'll, I'll preface this with that. But when I left, I was like, I want to find a way that I can guarantee I'm going to love what I'm doing in five years from now. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't love, I loved the road racing. I loved the camaraderie of it, but there was also a lot of ego and it was a constant fight to get a one-year contract. And I didn't see that as being a long-term healthy goal for myself stressful right like that's it's like you can't you can't even 100 percent concentrate on your job because you have to concentrate you know denote a little part of that mental capacity and those compute cycles to okay what am i doing now it's going to make sure i can probably get a contract for the next year and then the next year yeah and there's another way you can say it that i just wasn't good enough right and i'm the first one to say that it doesn't really like whatever reason it was if i just wasn't good enough to guarantee i was going to get a contract year after year it's still enough for me to say okay i wasn't going to be purely happy here how do you find the next step or the next where the road splits and you find you find your path but yeah i kind of made that decision and then almost reneg- reneged on myself 2017 was the, my end of my contract with yumbo visma yeah a lot of yumbo at the time and 2018 i was going in and i was like headed to go home to race on the dirt and then all of a sudden like oh fuck i feel like i want to be back racing road and like kind of went back to a pro conti team and like did that for half a year and finally just reminded myself like i this is not what i do this is comfortable this is why i want to do this because i've done this for the last eight years finally convinced myself to actually like jump in and went back and kind of had conversations with companies and that was the first big step right when you're 23 years old and you're having to like figure out how to sell yourself to a company or pitch yourself to a company takes a little bit and slowly just got to this point where I was like, this is fun. How do I make this better? And so I quickly realized mountain biking wasn't the thing. Gravel was kind of coming up and I just started learning. Like the whole first year that I was working, still working with the same coach I have growing up, like it was literally just go do events, see how you go, learn what every event is like. Like that was the thing. If you could ask me on the road, what is Liège like? What is Lombardia like? What is the Tour of Poland like? I could answer for you. I had studied them. I'd done them. I figured that out. Gravel and mountain biking, I had no idea. So the first two years, like figuring it out, even even into 2021, was my first unbound, like figuring it out, I flatted eight times, figured out how to eat. And it slowly morphs into like having success after you learn those things and do it in a positive direction instead of being angry at yourself the whole time, <laughs> which is easy to do. And yeah. It kind of morphed and I just, I, I found my place in, in what the sport is right now. I think it's a third racing and it's another third doing from the ground up and other things like that. And the other part of it is just trying to have fun and do things that I think are just riding bikes. Like, I mean, last week I was in New York doing that five burrows ride. That's an awesome ride. Dude, isn't it mind blowing? Unreal. And so those kind of things, like, I don't think past Alexi would have been able to just set it aside because it's, it's train, 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 train. But gravel being one day races does give you a little bit more leniency sometimes. Yeah. What was the craziest thing you saw on a bike at Five Burrows, right? Probably a guy absolutely ripping on a, like a city bike. I mean, we're up there, you know, by that point with all the road bikes are at the front and we're like going hard and I mean, like 28 miles an hour down the gutter. And I'm like, oh, geez, I got to move to the other side of the road. This is cool, but I'm going to go over there. 
This Bike Rumor podcast was brought to you by The Pros Closet. Wherever you ride, The Pros Closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel with available financing and competitive pricing. TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 That to me seems like it's missing the point of the whole ride. I mean, we would I've done it twice with my wife and she's done it once or twice more with her friends. And we always tried really hard to get up into the first wave because we knew we were going to slack around. And, and both times we were like fighting the broom wagon at the back because they will absolutely kick you off. But, you know, we were stopping at a brewery, stopping at lunch, just enjoying the sights. And it's the creativity on some of the bikes. Like we saw one pulling like a little portable DJ booth on a trailer. Another one had a stripper pull on a trailer and somebody dancing on it and just wild. It's a crazy thing. And I also can't ever, I think everyone's like, oh yeah, look at the ride you did. But like it's two times in the entire year that New York closes those streets. Marathon and that ride. I don't know you could convince many cities to close their streets for that long, let alone New York City. Maybe if they looked at the tourism numbers, because what is it, like 40,000 riders? I mean, plus friends and family, right? 32,000 register, 40 to 45,000 take part. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, so, it's a bucket list thing for anybody who hasn't done that yet. I'd, yeah, definitely worth doing. Yeah, and if, for anyone who doesn't know, because I didn't the day before, there is a bike path on the Brooklyn Bridge. The day before, I rode over the Brooklyn Bridge at 5.30 in the morning. People were very angry. Very cool. Yeah, Greg, that was... I've never heard anybody say you know, with gravel, learn the course, right? Because I'm, I'm looking at it from the amateur standpoint where, you know, I'm not going to go pre-ride unbound or commit to two or three years of just learning it to be able to go do good in my, you know, third or fourth or fifth year there. Because, and honestly, unbound is like the one event that I have. No, sorry, Leadville's the one I have zero interest in. Unbound, a little bit. I would do the 100 just to kind of be there for the atmosphere. But regardless, the uh, learning the course is interesting because, I, you know, I've done like BWR in North Carolina. I've done Big Sugar. And I, I'm i not sure I was paying enough attention to the course to think, okay, next year I could do this differently and all that. But I guess that's just part of strategy as a pro, right? Yeah, to a point. It's also, I think, just a big, like it wasn't that I wasn't racing hard. It's more just giving yourself the break before the race that you don't have any big solidified goals. Your goal is just to go out there, ride your bike hard, have fun. And then, you know, going back 2022, I was like, yeah, I kind of want to be there. Like, I'm going to be at the pointy end of this. Like, otherwise, this is uh, not a success. I wouldn't say it's a failure, but it's something hopefully went wrong beyond my control. Never heard that. Hopefully went wrong. (laughs) Something hopefully went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just little things, right? Like the first year flatting, flatting eight times, I think it's the way I was riding, right? It wasn't my tires, right? the same tires the next year, pretty much. You have to give yourself a break, give some space between the guy in front of you. You know when to fight for a position. The courses change. I'm not, I mean, I do pre-ride a lot of those courses because I'm someone who likes to, but it's not that what you're learning is like, how does my body deal with riding 10 or 11 hours? How does my body deal with eating this many carbs per hour or taking in that much fluid? You can do it in training. It's never the same as a race. So I think literally doing it one year before gives someone without stress, gives someone a much better chance of absolutely annihilating it because you just, you take in it's even if you think subconsciously you're not, you're taking in so much information that you're you're going to take it into the next year. You're going to be like, oh, this is where I felt like I was at the back. I'm going to move forward now. And it's almost subconscious, but you just start doing it. Um, or I ran 40 PSI and it felt way too harsh and I flat it. You know, like, and you hear someone beside you or you end up in a group with somebody. You're like, oh, 
Are you running inserts? Like there's little things that I think just start to tailor who you are and how you race. And yeah, I think it's just, it's 2021. I don't think I would have said, oh, I have no goals. But I think that the real overarching thing was I'm not putting pressure on myself at this race. And then you can take that into the next year and hopefully the next year. Do you run inserts? Depends. Rarely. Unbound's one that I, I have before, just like even just the insurance of being able to ride a flat to the, to like to the feed zone if you had to. Most of the time for me, I don't think it's worth the wait. Sounds dumb, stupid, but like if you, if you can nail tire pressure um, and ride your bike lightly at times, it's really hard to take an insert out and put a tube in. It's going to take you a long time. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm mixed on that. Like if you took a look at the Grand Prix gravel races, like I ran it at, I'll run them at probably Unbound and Big Sugar. I won't run it at the Rad Dirt. I won't, won't run them at Crusher. So just trying to figure out what works and um, where it's worth it and what tire you're running. Interesting. Because like some of those courses, like Big Sugar just had a lot of, just a lot of vibration, a lot of, you know, those little like rain ruts and stuff like where, because I was running a loud fork on my bike for that. And I was so happy that I did. But what is it about a particular course you look at that's kind of that criteria for yes or no on the inserts? Big compressions for inserts. So an insert, obviously the point of it is to kind of not let the tire hit the edges of the rim. So if you want to be able to run lower pressure, do you still like you have a lot of sharp rocks and you're going to have compressions An insert allows you to run lower pressure and hopefully not pinch flat. If it's a smooth course, you can run pretty much run lower pressure and just pay attention because you don't have to look out for sharp shit. You're not going to see big sugar, for example, as you know, like sharp shit everywhere. It's just trying to flat, trying to flat you. So it was just I ran bigger tires there and I ran inserts and kind of hope for the best. You're clearly sponsored by Envy. You've got that sweet mod, which I'll put a link to the show notes to check out that custom bike they did because it's gorgeous. Do you, but also Shimano, presumably. So do you run Shimano wheels or Envy wheels? Envy wheels. Okay. I, those are actually not to, you know, <laughs> Envy made the connection for us to talk, but, you know, this is an app for them, but I, I love their gravel wheels. And it's specifically because of the, the outer shape of the bead where it's just such a, a broad round profile that those pinch flats, like I've intentionally tried to smash tires and things on roots just when I was reviewing them and same with the round bike wheels. Like I just, they're so good. Yeah. And I, for people that don't know, cause I, I was arranged when I went to the, went to the factory, right. It's almost like a piece of paper inside of that carbon, right. That makes it just a little wider as opposed to being just a piece of carbon on the, as the rims. And I don't know. It's, I think, all wheel companies are figuring it out. Envy to me has just always been on the front end. Like I can run a G23, which is a very compliant, almost mountain bike-esque gravel wheel. And there's reasons to run it, right? That it's light and it's compliant. It's not aero as aero, yes. but like uh, the ability as a professional and not everyone needs this, but the ability as a professional to be able to pick equipment is the definition between finishing fourth and fifth and finishing on the podium. The race has changed so quickly that you have to be able to run the best equipment for that on that given day. Cool. What, uh, what else do you ride? Because people always geek out on that. So I'm like tires, handlebars. You've been with Kenda since I came in. Kenda at first for, for like, a, this is the one of the things that I think people forget about with privateer program. It's an athlete most of the time directly with companies, right? And being able to work through that. My first year, I was like, it was a lot of my fault, I think, the way I was riding. But I flatted so much at Unbound. I feel I felt like I flatted out of every big breakaway winning move. And I like, I was so ready to go into the meeting at the end of the year and just be like, this is not it. Like these tires don't work for me. It took a moment. It was like, okay, as an athlete, if I broke my wrist, what would I expect from a company? Like, you know, feel it out and went in and talked to, to Aaron and Roger and still literally riding pretty much the same tires I was that year. And I was flatting 
But it took that moment of like, this is not the company or product's fault to figure out what was going wrong. And it's been, I like, I have absolutely loved their tires since. Kind of the same as Envy. They make a much larger array of tires than most companies do, just being that automotive side is in their background, which just for me as a coming from the road, there's times where I will give up rolling resistance because I need more traction, right? Like it just is the case. And having that ability to pick through, whether it's a fast rolling, something like their alluvium or their like mini mountain bike tire, they make called a booster. Like you can't go wrong. Like I run that booster almost all the time training because I can go from the road having a high roller resistance, who cares, to like ripping mountain bike trail and go right back. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite tires, both on gravel and XC. Like it's just such such a good tread pattern. Because you get on top of the knobs and you roll pretty dang fast. It's not that annoying. But yeah, so Kenda work with the feed, work with sweep protection, as helmets and glasses, ESI grips and stuff. If you don't never use ESI, silicone is awesome. Orange seal for sealant, which has been awesome. It's just kind of figuring out where and when sealant coming from the road was a tough one for me. I did like, I was so against it. I was like, this is, this is just yucky and it goes everywhere and doesn't work. And then all of a sudden it seals something like, yeah, I'm going to keep using that. So can you tell, uh, cause I've, I've got so many bottles of sealant here, every brand. And, you know, I know like Arm Steel has like their endurance and they're cold and they're regular and maybe something else. Like, do you play around with the different ones and can you actually tell a difference between them? There definitely is a difference. Like you'll just see if, if you're actually putting in the, the amount that said one of them will start to dry out. And this is also the, just to go back quickly, it's also an issue with inserts. If you're keeping inserts in, pay attention because they will soak up some of your sealant and you will have no sealant left. I think because I'm, I'm so focused on be having the bike be the best it can on a given race. There's very few times where I run tires dry. I'm almost always taking a tire off and I'm riding so much that it's coming off and being thrown away. And I'm adding new sealant before sealant's even dried up. The cold weather stuff's definitely helpful, like growing up in Michigan. And when I go back there, like it just, the other stuff, you can just, you almost hear it sometimes, like when it gets like negative 10. I don't know what Orange Shield adds to it or what other companies add to it, but it just, I, it, you can hear it still moving. Like if you take the tire off after one of them sounds kind of like beads and the other one sounds like it's still a liquid, but like, yeah, to be fair, the, the long lasting stuff, like I put it in when I'm doing in training tires and I put the other one in for racing. Cause I know I'm going to change it, but I don't, it's not something I'm like checking and looking like I kind of like, you, I usually put a little more than the direction of the back of the bottle because I don't really care about the weight and you can almost always, you just check, you can hear it. Right. And if it's sloshing around, you have enough. And if you don't, you don't. I also like for new tires, I almost always put a little extra in too, because obviously it needs to coat the tire before it also needs to have sealant left. I think people would be annoyed if I didn't ask about Willie. So we should talk about Willie. <laughs> Sleeping behind me on the couch. Yeah. How'd that come about? COVID again. Um, Willie is, is my girlfriend's dog. She had him about two, three months before we started dating. We started dating just before COVID, like end of 2019. And she's a professional triathlete. She's actually in Japan right now trying to make the Olympics. and she would do run workouts. And at that point, I really had nothing else to do. I'd already ridden my bike. And so I'd go do half these workouts with her on the bike. Like I would just go and ride around. So at first we just, you know, it's somewhat slow when you're on a running track with the dog, you're like, it's just a way to bring him along, put him in the backpack, bring him along. He got to be there with us the whole time. And then we started doing, okay, she's doing an endurance run. We'll take him like, okay, she's doing 13 miles, like an hour, hour and a bit, bring Willie and you know, let him out halfway through. He'll run, put him back in the backpack. It's great. He's excited. We have fun. This really progressed. And then we did like coffee shops, rides. Like I'd ride, I'd ride with him, with her. And then it progressed into like, okay, let's actually do a training ride. And then now it's become my identity. 
It's a little risky, I think, using uh, somebody else's dog for your social media identity because, you know, what happens if you break up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then what, what happens to your social accounts? <laughs> so, so Sophie gets all angry because uh, everyone thinks Willie, like she runs his account. Like I, I don't need another social account. And he, everyone is like, hey, so like are Alexi and Willie, are you guys going to be here? And she's like, it's not, this is not Alexi. <laughs> but no, like we always thought Willie would hate it at one time. I remember one of the first times we took him out, like it was, we had torrential downpour. And I was like, he is going to hate this. He absolutely loves it. If I get kid on, he will sit by the door. He will not do shit. He won't do anything else. He'll sit by the door. And there's only one time I've ever seen him not want to go ride. It was actually this year. Sophie had left and I was in Tucson doing a training camp. And every day I hold the backpack up, either runs up and like wants to get in it, just starts jumping where he doesn't. And so for eight days in a row, he did. And it happened to be where I was doing like massive blocks. So Willie did like 27 hours in the backpack. What am I doing like a month? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the, so like the next Monday I did like an easy like hour, 15, hour and a half to a coffee shop. And he wanted to go on that one, like kind of a little less, less excited, but he wanted to go. And then Tuesday I was heading out for like my final ride. And I was like, you, I didn't really want to take him also, but I was like, do you want to go? And he literally lifted his head, put his head back down. I was like, <laughs> screw you. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's more than the bike riding. Obviously, it's a little bit of the, like the dog's head out the window esque. Like it's almost the perfect speed. But even more than that, I think it's just it's he doesn't want to be left, right? Most dogs want to come along, so he sees the backpack as the way. Does he just sleep half the time, or can you tell he's he's like looking around and oh, he's like ex- exhausted after he's chasing things. He's mentally like checking everybody out. He'll like if someone comes and like joins our group, he'll sniff them to like figure out if he knows them. Like it's <laughs> comical. And my, the favorite part is like. You ride down a path, like I've been like sworn at off the road, right? Or flipped off. And then someone, and then they will come back and be like, oh, cute dog. Like it's the great equalizer of peace. Like people smile more. Nobody's angry at, angry at you on a bike path. It's kind of just been fun. And I think the only thing that changes for me is the way I ride a little bit. And I like to say that because I think there's a lot of people who ride with their dogs now, not to be the one that started it, but it's more just like, I think I've done it a lot as like, the, like almost like I make a joke about like being a training thing. Like, oh, I don't need to train with a camelback because I have a dog. I ride very differently when I'm with him. Like zero risk. And obviously there's still risk when you have zero risk, when you take no risk. To this day, I've never crashed with him. But it's one of those things that I think like people need to, I still get those comments, right? It's about finding that line of like, what's worth it? Where are you in control? And where are you not? And usually that means for me, I almost am always riding a mountain bike with him just because I, I feel like I'm in more control with it. If you flat, you're, it's easier to control. If you anything else happens, uh, you have more grip and it's just about not like leaning into things. It's funny that I feel the same way. Like I feel like I'm in more control on a mountain bike, even though you're riding over things, you know, all this crazy terrain and dropping off stuff, making jumps. And you're like, yeah, I still feel safer than I do riding roads. It's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm sure you get those comments. And the way I would look at it is like, look, people take their, kids on bikes i mean those those little jump seats that you put in front of them now i feel like oh man they're just gonna slam into the cockpit if you wreck or fall off the back or yeah there's never no risk but at some point you just kind of have to bring people along bring animals along whatever willie's legs are small he doesn't walk so he's got to do something yeah i was just what you said you <laughs> took him to the track it's like he's there's no way he's running track wiener dogs you know you do the quarter mile maybe and he's done oh dude easy if that the longest I ever saw him run was two and a half minutes, and he was just, he didn't know where he was going. He was stuck on a single track trail. That's <laughs> uh, funny. All right, on. Huh? Well, cool. Thanks. I appreciate the, the stories and the, the chat. That was fun. 
No, it was awesome. Thanks for thanks for doing this. I always love talking. Things always morph into their own, especially when there's no agenda to it. So, yeah, this is, I, I like this format. I'm going to do this more. Awesome. Cool. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Yep. Thank you. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.